Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, election interference is top of mind this week in Ottawa. We'll discuss that and more with Dr. Lori Turnbull, the Director of School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Also covering the week at Queen's Park and all things in American politics with Reggie Cicchini in his weekly Washington report. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's circle back to to what's happening on this side of the border for the time being. It's all about uh, the possibility of foreign interference, of course, in Canadian elections. Uh, CSIS report last week really seemed to spark debate on this. And, uh, well, as late as yesterday, the prime minister uh, still insists that, that, well, there's no foreign interference in the 2019 and the 2021 Canadian elections. Here's what he had to say. The independence, the professionalism, the rigor with which they looked at it is something that Canadians can take tremendous reassurance in, in the fact that it was found that our election integrity held. Well, let's uh, use that as our starting point today with uh, a very busy day in Ottawa, and we're pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Lori Turnbull. Dr. Turnbull, of course, is the Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, Lori, always a pleasure. Uh, are we anticipating a lot of fireworks when uh, they get back to, to work today in the Commons? Oh, I think so. I think this is going to be quite the day, and it's going to be really interesting to see how the opposition parties um, take a similar line to each other or kind of find a bit of space between them. So all the opposition parties are, I think all are calling for a public inquiry into foreign interference. I think the Conservatives want to limit it to the 19, 2019 and 2021 elections. And the NDP are saying, let's let's expand it even farther than that to cover conservative times when there were conservative governments as well. And so how the Liberals are going to handle this is going to be very interesting, given the fact that they've got this report saying that the level of interference was not enough to shake the integrity or the legitimacy of the elections. At the same time, we know that there are attempts at interference. We know that China is the biggest threat. We've heard from people going to committee last week saying, you know, this is something that we've basically got in hand. Don't believe every piece of intelligence you hear, even the stuff that's being leaked. But I mean, I think it's going to be really hard for the liberals to put this, you know, put the toothpaste back in the tube at this point. Well, what power does Parliament actually have here? This is a minority government. Uh, and I hear Mr. Polyev and Mr. Singh both suggesting that they're demanding the prime minister uh, call this inquiry. Can Parliament not do that with, without the prime minister's okay? Okay. So, I mean, I think if the if Parliament is going to investigate something through a committee, it's not the prime minister who makes that kind of decision. Uh-huh. But if, if there's going to be a public inquiry, and this is going to be something that the government kind of takes on as outside of parliament through the appointment of an inquiry. Only the government can do that. And so I think, you know, some people are saying, look, um, and, I, and, I, and I'm sympathetic to this view. How is a public inquiry going to get to the bottom of something that involves national security information? You can't put all this out there and say, you know, let's all have a look and see what's going on. This has to be dealt with by a group of people who have access, who have security or top or sorry, secret or top secret clearance, and who are able to actually see all of the different things to be able to make this kind of determination and then report back to people in a way that doesn't disrupt national security. And so in some ways, it seems to me that the the, the requests for, and the demands for a public inquiry they're doing this knowing that the prime minister, A, doesn't want to do it, probably can't do it. And so it's it's going to make him look like he's not responsive and he's not, you know, wanting to be transparent about something. 
Well, and, and there's, I guess, where the debate is on this. And, and typically, of course, you know, it's been politicized, as you might have expected. But uh, I think a, a lot of people are probably using as a benchmark what we just saw with the Inquiries Act, uh, uh, the, 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 at the inquiry, rather, <laughs> into the Emergencies Act. And, mm-hmm. and it, it's not going to be that way. There's not going to be a whole lot in the way of open testimony. And there's got to be a lot of stuff that we are just not going to have an, a privy to that information. So, I mean, what would we actually learn that we don't already know? So that's what I'm worried about. Like you make an ex- excellent comparison to the the Emergencies Act. That's something that I think was very much like obviously it's in it's in the emergencies legislation that all had to happen by law. But also the nature of the the trucker convoy, the nature of the what was being studied and what kind of determination they were looking at from Justice Rouleau. That was all very much, you know, that that was something that was that was very conducive, I think, to having a public inquiry and questions and answers about what happened and why. Something that involves national security is not that that kind of thing at all, right? Like, and most of this would have to happen, you know, behind closed doors. And and so like then you lose the transparency right out of the gate. I'm worried about this. If the government wants to look responsive to demands for a public inquiry. They could do so by creating the terms of reference in ways that actually don't get at the real problem. You know, they could write it in a way that was kind of a loose academic, let's talk about foreign interference and the possible pros, you know, like the possible ways of dealing with that, as opposed to let's get to the specifics of what happened in this case. Now that can be, that's an issue with public inquiries across the board. Are they dealt with in a way that's like, are they drawn up in a way that's very narrow or are they drawn up in a way that's gigantic and therefore you don't really get a whole lot of clarity, you get analysis. But I think in this case, you know, there could be a kind of political imperative for the government to look responsive by appointing a public inquiry that actually doesn't do what people want it to do. Meanwhile, you know, what happens to the this, you know, person or people who are leaking at CSIS? Are they going to keep talking? Like, when is this going to end? Yeah, that seems to be the, one of the major problems at this stage. Where's the information coming from? And and we don't really yeah. have an answer for that as of yet. So when they finally start with question period today, and, and you know, uh, Mr. Polyev and, and Mr. Singh, uh, among others, are going to be calling for this. Uh, over the weekend, I'm sure you saw, uh, Jagmeet Singh suggested that he's not quite sure yet uh, whether or not he wants to pull the plug on his, uh, his partnership with the Liberals here. You know, and it's all to do with this inquiry. Uh, which which kind of sounds to me as if he's playing politics within politics here. In other words, you know, if, if you're really concerned that this is an issue of public safety and the integrity of our elections at stage, demand it and, and stand by your principles. But he seems to want to barter now with the prime minister. So he says he's not going to make a decision until, until later on. Would he actually pull the plug? Would he go that far and, and throw us into an election? Because inevitably that's what would happen. I mean, I think right now he's probably not sure yet, right? Like he's reading the tea leaves. He's trying to figure out what's going on, whether there is an opportunity to be had for him. Because at the same time, like there's playing politics and then there's doing something that's going to be colossally bad for you. And he, there's no point in him going to an election if he's going to be the same or worse. And, you know, so he's going to be looking at the numbers to see 
where there's any possibility for the NDP to gain from this and whether he'd actually be just sort of doing the work of hand of, of possibly handing a government over to Pierre Polyev, which would then be a weaker position for, for Jigmeet Singh and the NDP potentially, even if they had more seats in absolute terms. And there's so many variables here. Like some polls are saying that the liberals and the conservatives are basically tied. Some polls are saying the NDP are doing really well. Some people are saying that some polls are saying the conservatives are up like eight or nine points. And so all of that is at the same time as we're going to have redrawn boundaries, if depending on when the election would be called. And so there's so many variables to think about. But the other thing too is like, even if we went, if we even if the Jagmeet Singh says, look, I'm not gonna stand with the liberals over this, the NDP are on the side of protecting the integrity of democracy and this is just too far. And if they don't wanna call any inquiry, then we're out. Even if he says something like that, like, then what? <laughs> like, what for him? And is it possible that he's going to be able to make that an election issue? Would he want that to be an election issue? Because even if people are really concerned about the possibility of foreign interference, does that mean that when politicians hit the campaign trail, that's going to be the dominant issue? Or are people still going to be like, yeah, we were pretty sure that China was trying to interfere anyway, so let's go back to talking about the cost of living. And I'm not, I'm just not sure, even if this was the thing to break the agreement between the Liberals and the NDP, I'm not sure this would be an election issue, which is kind of ironic because the issue is elections themselves. Well, yeah, exactly. And and you're right. I mean, is this what we're going to fight this thing on? Uh, because, you know, the, the polling that we've seen uh, in still indicates that, you know, the economy and whether or not I can, you know, afford groceries this week is, is still number one here. Uh, not to suggest that, you know, not, that this is not important. Certainly it is. But I'm not so sure it's on everybody's radar to the extent that, that you know, those who are closest to or studying this or following politics uh, have gravitated toward it. Uh, you know, uh, ask the average citizen of Portage in Maine or King and James downtown Hamilton. I'm not so sure this is their number one issue. Exactly. Because I, again, like I, th I think you're absolutely right. I mean, when it comes down to how are you going to place your vote, I'm not sure that this would be the issue that would really, you know, change the minds of people or, um, you know, make, make all other issues seem less important. Like, to be honest, I, I doubt it. And unless, um, you know, even if this is the case, even if people, if if there's an opportunity here for Jigmeet Singh to say, I want to, I want to break up with the liberals, you know, like he needs, if he wants to get out, he needs a reason. And something like this could serve as that, even if he's willing to say, okay, yeah, when we get to a campaign, it's going to be about something else. But I mean, frankly, depending on how he's doing in the polls, Justin Trudeau might be okay with that. He might be okay to, to have things break over the foreign interference issue as long as he can then co go and try to command, you know, whatever the campaign issue is going to be when he's on the campaign trail. And so I think there's a lot of risk for all the parties in making this kind of decision. But the other thing, too, is we'll see how this goes. We'll, we'll look at and all the parties are going to be looking at how public opinion is possibly affected by this. And even if this is not the issue that's most important for people. There's also the possibility that this is just one more thing that makes the liberal brand more tarnished. And that's really up to Pierre Polyev, I think, to determine what kind of bucket is he going to put this in? Is he going to say this is one more reason you can't just trust Justin Trudeau? This is one more thing that the government just doesn't tell us the truth. They're incompetent. They can't even run an election without problems. Like, And will that sort of thing have resonance with people as sort of a piggyback issue as opposed to a main issue? Well, let's segue into that. Uh, as you are aware, uh, this was a busy weekend in Hamilton, downtown. The Ontario Liberals were having their AGM. Uh, but just down the street on Stony Creek, Pierre Polyev uh, had a, a public meeting, uh, as he did in London a little bit later on. 
and uh, drew huge, huge crowds. I mean, and this is not typically, a, a, especially on the federal level, a conservative town. Uh, an awful lot of NDP and liberal seats here, very few conservatives on a national level, uh, yet the, the crowd seemed to be there. Uh, not everybody's a fan. I'm sure you saw the tweet from uh, my friend Charles Adler over the weekend. Uh, it says, Pierre Polyev, a person purporting to be qualified to Canada's prime minister, spewing World Economic Forum conspiracy nonsense, no different than the average QAnon nut job. So uh, uh, Chuck's clearly not a big fan of Mr. Polyev. Uh, but there are people that are at least listening to him right now, even if, if not following him right now, uh, which I find ironic for a guy that says he hates, you know, the, the media, the liberal media. Uh, but he's certainly trying to use it as much as he can now to try to increase his profile. Absolutely. And that seemed to be a kind of a careful approach on his part in that at first, you know, he was he was not really taking any kind of a, you know, he, he was it was almost like he was trying to avoid engaging with the mass with the mainstream media on some sort of assumption that they didn't like him very well. They weren't going to put him in a good light. He was a better deliverer of his own message than other people. But I think that was making more sense in the early stages of his leadership. Now that he's looking more at when the election is going to be, and now that he knows that he's got a conservative base around him, he's going to have to think about how can I expand beyond that? And so I think for him, he's looking like there seems to be more value in drawing attention to the fact that he's got momentum. Like he wants to go out and look and show people, I'm putting a whole bunch of people in a room, they're clapping for me, I've got a momentum around me. And maybe I think he's hoping, you know, that will have other people who would typically not vote for him, look at him and think, oh, he's starting to look like he's got a lot of support behind him. Because when people start thinking you might win, even if they don't like you, they might start thinking, okay, well, there's something going on there. There's momentum there that I want to be around. On the other hand, if people think there's no way that guy's going to be prime minister, there, it's much easier to just give you a pass. Not well, anymore. and you just talked about the liberal band a couple of minutes ago. And, 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 you know, that harkens back, of course, to 2005, 2006, when Paul Martin eventually did call an election. Uh, and it just seemed as if people were just tired of the liberals. Uh, you know, yes, the Gomery Commission was out there and the report came out. And although it didn't specifically say the Liberals did anything wrong, they just said, well, they mismanaged this again, like they've done an awful lot of other things. And they said, all right, you're out of here. And, and they elected Stephen Harper. Uh, and I, I guess Polyev is figuring the history may well repeat itself if, that, if in fact, there's going to be an election sooner than later. Well, that's the thing. And I mean, I think that just thinking about elections sooner rather than later, I mean, I think that in the beginning of this year, if somebody had said to me, do you think there's going to be an election this year? I would have said, absolutely not. There's no way. But now I don't know, because it just seems like things are shifting. And it seems like, um, you know, it, I think the liberals would be hard pressed to do what they did in 2021, which is to say, hey, look, um, we want to go to, we want to give this a shot. We want to go to the polls where we're, we're confident in this. I think they need at this point, if they're going to go to election this year, it needs to be somebody else's doing. One of the opposition parties is going to have to really kind of go to the wall for this. And I think it would probably in the end require a kind of a breakup between the liberals and the NDP. But what seemed very unlikely to me in January seems a little more possible now. And even with the things like with the redrawing of the map, um, I think it's possible that this, this whole, um, conversation around foreign interference, again, may not be the election issue, but it might be the thing that just kind of changes the conversation and takes it to a different level that opposition parties will be able to find a way to pull the plug on this if they want it. But of course, that depends on money. That depends on where everybody is in terms of readiness for an election. Exactly. It's going to be a very pivotal week, I would think. Laurie, as always, thank you so much for this. Have a great week. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Bill. Take care.
Dr. Delore Turnbull from Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Busy week politically here in the uh, city of Hamilton as well. The Ontario Liberals had their annual general meeting. Uh, and as uh, Mitzi Hunter told us uh, when we talked with her last week, the uh, MPP from Scarborough, that uh, no, it's not leadership. We're not even going to talk leadership. Well, I bet they did in the hallways and in the uh, in the meeting rooms. Uh, Sabrina Nancy joins us to talk about this. Sabrina, of course, is the publisher of Queen's Park Observer. Uh, Sabrina, welcome back to the program. Good to have you with us today. Yeah, thanks, Bill. Happy Monday. And to you too. So, talk to us about about the the, the mood at, with the Ontario Liberals. It's a party that's uh, you know taken a bit of a butt kicking in the last provincial election. I guess the one before that too. Uh, but hope springs eternal, and they they want to you know they said modernize the party, change the electoral system to how to select a leader, and come back united uh, and ready to go to take on uh, the Ford government. Uh, did, did you see that enthusiasm? Did you feel that that vibe? Well, it kind of seemed like the last two elections never really happened. You know, the the grits were in good spirits. Uh, They, uh, you know, despite being reduced to a minivan sized party in the last two elections. um, But but certainly this was the biggest gathering that they've had in person uh, in, in two decades, the party says. And so I think that, you know, kind of this feeling of renewal and the beginning of uh, maybe making a comeback was certainly palpable. And, and you're right, you know, they did make some key decisions uh, on on how they're going to pick their next leader. And so essentially this weekend was just kind of a pregame for that. And, and I think the most significant takeaway is that the Ontario Liberals are going to kind of uh, jo- get up to speed and, and join the rest of most political parties in the country and switch to a weighted one-member, one-vote system, which is pretty much what it sounds like. Every card-carrying member will have a say in who their leader is, as opposed to that delegated convention where only a few folks um, who represent their ridings are the ones who pick the leader. And so delegated conventions tend to be a lot more entertaining, uh, but they're they're not as democratic as proponents of weighted one member, one vote will tell you. Uh, delegated conventions kind of tend to favor, you know, backroom deals and, and things happening behind closed doors. So I, I think that this is really exciting and we're going to start to see um, the leadership race not only take shape, but we're going to start to see people who uh, you know, want to actually throw their hat in the ring and make it official, uh, start start to come out and, and you know, uh, declare either way as well. Well, let's talk about that, you know, in the absence of facts about that, because they said they weren't going to select the leader. But let's do a little speculation here, because uh, I'm sure that was the buzz going around uh, with the, the folks that were in this convention. Uh, and the question, I guess, basically is who's in, who's out? I mean, as I mentioned just before you jumped in, uh, Mitzi Hunter was with us on the show, I guess it was last Thursday, uh, and said she's not going to be a candidate for the uh, the leadership of the Ontario Liberal Party. Uh, but I'm hearing some buzz that she may be interested in wanting to be the mayor of Toronto. What, what's what's going on here? Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And you know, Mitzi Hunter's line is "Stay tuned." She, I would say, out of the um, you know potential contenders for liberal leader, Hunter's uh, you know exploring exploratory bit of that kind of taxi down the runway never really achieved liftoff. She she was nowhere near as close as you know Yasser Nakvi, Nate Erskine Smith, or, or Ted Shu when it comes to. Um, you know, potentially running for liberal leader. And now that, you know, John Tory has kind of opened up this space at City Hall in Toronto, um, Mitzi Hunter says that she's talking to a lot of people. She's get she's, you know, kind of gauging her support out there. And she's not really ready to say, you know, if she's going to jump in the race officially for mayor yet. But 
certainly the vibe that I was getting from people who were talking to her at this weekend Liberal Party convention, you know, they seem to think that at least the way, you know, Mitzi Hunter was talking about it, it's pretty much a done deal for her. And so uh, I think that, you know, we, we could potentially see her make a move sometime soon. Certainly, you know, reporters are going to be bugging her about it every day. She doesn't make it official either way. Um, but, but this could also trigger a by-election too at Queen's Park because, uh, for an MPP to run for mayor, you need to give up your seat. And so that could that could happen sometime in May for Mitzi. But, you know, the clock is certainly ticking um, for her. And and so I, I guess, like, in one sense, there was some, you know, a, a leadership hopeful this weekend. But then, of course, there were, um, as I mentioned, Yasser Nakbi, Nader Skin-Smith, Ted Shu, Stephanie Bowman, another sitting MPP uh, were also, uh, you know, kind of schmoozing. They host these hospitality suites over the weekend. And they're just kind of trying to gain you know, their own support within the party. And uh, I guess, you know, put themselves out there, even though nothing is official. I don't think we'll get anything official until we actually have the date for the leadership race. And I think, Bill, you and I had spoken earlier about um, the timing of the race potentially uh, impacting the candidates as well. You know, Nate Erskine-Smith had told me that if the race was in late 2024, uh you know, he, he probably, he might not run. Um, and so a lot of people are really antsy to get this going because they really need more time to fundraise, to build the party back and to actually be competitive in 2026 and take on Doug Ford. Well, and you were mentioning too, but you know, maybe a high profile name to, to take a run at this. And, uh, Erskine Smith, of course, uh, who's a, a federal MP, of course, is, is maybe thinking of this Bonnie Crombie, the mayor of Mississauga's name has been popping up from time to time. I don't know if that's a trial balloon or not. Did you hear anything about that? Well, it's funny because there was all this buzz about Bonnie Crombie uh, leading up to the AGM. And and certainly, you know, that's what my sources have been saying for weeks, too, that there's this kind of growing draft Bonnie for leader movement within the party. Um, and, and it was interesting that Bonnie Crombie was actually headlining her own hospitality suite. Now, she hasn't said no, but she hasn't said yes. Uh, and I think she kind of, you know, from my understanding, speaking to liberals at the at, who were there this weekend, they got the feeling that Bonnie was kind of downplaying, you know, this potential bid. Um, and so maybe she's kind of uh, taking some time to consider it. But certainly, I, I think at this point, it's on the back burner for her. She doesn't really need to be in any rush. You know, we don't even have a date for the leadership contest yet. There are certainly many grits who see her as the their savior, the person who can revive this party, do what Justin Trudeau kind of did for the liberals when they were in third place federally. Um, she doesn't have a, a lot of the same political baggage that some other contenders would. Um, and she's she's a great opponent to Doug Ford. And so I, I think right now she's kind of enjoying that role. She's happy uh, where she is as mayor of Mississauga and, and chair of the big city mayors and kind of, you know, fighting um, on that front, fighting some of the unpopular decisions in her view from Doug Ford on that front. Um, but I do think that that, you know, draft Bonnie uh, movement is not going away anytime soon. But I think that, you know, they're going to be laying low over the coming weeks. Uh, you mentioned by-elections a second ago. There is one happening right now in Hamilton Center. That's the seat that previously occupied by Andrea Horvath, uh, Mayor Andrea Horvath now. Uh, and, and it's not without its controversy. I mean, usually these by-elections don't get a whole lot of attention. Uh, but uh, there's there's a lot of stories now about uh, the anti-Israeli activism and some of the comments raised by the NDP candidate. Uh, we've got former Mayor Bob Bertino, who's also a former Liberal MP for Hamilton East Stony Creek, uh, endorsing the progressive conservative candidate. It's uh, it's heating up a little bit, uh, and rather unexpectedly, too. Yeah, who says by-elections are boring, right? Yeah. <laughs> this is... 
I mean, I know, of course, we've been following this very closely at Queen's Park, um, and it's going to be the first test of NDP leader Marit Stiles, because as we know, Hamilton Center has long been represented by the NDP. Their candidate, Sarah Jama, is, you know, very likely um, going to be the next NDP at Queen's Park. And so now there are these reports coming out about her, uh, you know, being part of Facebook groups that have been deemed by the Jewish community as anti-Israel. And, you know, this is a nuanced issue. There, there's no doubt about that. You know, uh, the NDP is defending their candidate, but it's not the first time that they've had people in their party um, called out for, you know, making these types of uh, anti-Israel marks. And, and there have been apologies. I'm thinking of Joel Hardin, um, the representative in Ottawa. And so mm-hmm. this is, of course, a nuanced issue, you know, uh, uh, Sarah Jama had spoken out in favor of Palestine. And I, I think that this is a little bit of a gray area. There's no doubt that Israel and Palestine is a political hot potato for anyone, no matter which way you cut it. Um, but certainly there is you know, no shortage of drama in this by-election race. Whether it will actually do damage and take away some of the NDP vote, vote is a pretty big if. But I do think that Bob Bertina kind of coming out with this Hail Mary, you know, taking out an, an ad an advertorial, as they call it in the Hamilton spec this weekend, endorsing the PC's candidate, Pete Wisner, a local cop, and saying, basically, you know, Hamilton Center needs someone on the government side. They, they don't need um, someone in the opposition. They, they need someone to, to get things done, as the conservatives like to say. And so it was interesting having someone like Bob Bertina, former mayor, um, and, you know, uh, from the other side, politically, a, a former liberal MP backing the, the PC's candidate. Um, whether or not you know that will actually make a difference at the polls, I, I guess we'll find out in about ten days. Well, and we'll be watching for your reporting this week too. It's going to be a busy week, of course, uh, with uh, the Ford government and the investigations under Greenbelt, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, uh, you want to find out what's happening and who's saying what? Uh, then check it out with uh, the Queens Park Observer. Sabrina, thanks as always for this. Have a great week. Thanks you too, Bill. Sabrina Nanji, a publisher of Queens Park Observer, joining us uh, with a quick rundown of uh, the convention. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We had a Republican Party that was ruled by freaks, neocons, globalists, open border zealots, and fools. But we are never going back to the party of Paul Ryan, Carl Rove, and Jeb Bush. I know you know that voice. Uh, welcome back, by the way. This is the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML in Hamilton. Uh, Donald Trump uh, was the keynote speaker at uh, the uh, CPAC conference. Uh, that's uh, basically the annual conference of, uh, well, the extreme right wing uh, politicians, etc. cetera. Uh, and uh, he riled the crowd, according from the, the feedback that you got there. Uh, to talk about this and lots of other stuff going on in the U.S. Capitol, so pleased to welcome back to the program Reggie Cicchini. Reggie, of course, is the Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. Uh, Reggie, uh, thank you for the time. I was going to say Trump is back. I guess he was never really gone. But uh, what was your take on, on his basically, well, it was a rather long, meandering speech that he put to these people, uh, suggesting that he's the guy. It's it's almost kind of repeat, isn't it, Reggie? That well, the classic book that Phil Rucker wrote. Now, I alone can fix the problems of the United States. Right now, that seemed to be his message, wasn't it? Well, I mean, that's been the, the Trump message since 2016. Me and me alone, and anyone else is just going to fall in place with what I want. I think, kind of, to look at this broadly, Bill, 
um, we can kind of see what CPAC has turned into. Um, and at one point, it wasn't this kind of, um, you know, stand up and listen to the the, the Trump story, and, and that'll be all that comes of it. CPAC used to have a lot of meat in the game when it came to conservative politics. But over the, the couple of days before Donald Trump's speech, there were very few people in the crowd. I, I mean, Trump Jr., stood up to speak uh, on Friday and there the, there were more empty seats than there were seats that were filled. But then Donald Trump comes to speak on Saturday uh, and it is lined up to get in. So I think that there is a real understanding here that now CPAC is playing to what was once a fringe part of the Republican Party. It is now playing to the main part of the Republican Party and the base of the Republican Party, which is not shrinking. It is only expanding, uh, which is why you heard Donald Donald Trump say the conservative party of the past, the Reagan style, the Bush style of, of conservative politics is dead. And this is the new way for the Republicans. That's something they're going to have to now try to figure out how to navigate going forward. And, but this divorce that he seems to be uh, forcing upon the Republican Party right now is basically saying, you know, forget about even the guys that are in, in the Congress right now. Forget about Mitch uh, and 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 all these other people. You know, that that's their yesterday's news. Uh, he's not just trying to reinvent the, the Republican Party right now. He's really kind of divorced it so for the people that thought they were Republicans, uh, but don't meet his standards. Well, I mean, it's and and that's that's something that's been going on for the last several months, if not the last several years. Um, in that old school Republican conservatism has just been fizzling out. Look at what happened in the aftermath of January sixth, when you had the J six committee put together with next to no Republicans, with the exception of Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, both kind of old school, hard Republican conservatives, but not of the MAGA variety. Uh, and they were belittled. They were put down. They were attacked by Trump, uh, by Trump's base and by members who align themselves with Trump. This is the new party. Donald Trump does not see the old GOP, the grand old party as the grand old party. This is the grand new party. Uh, and, and he believes that there is a viable path forward. And from the polling that's out there, from the lack of names that are coming forward to jump into the uh, presidential race with him, this very well could still be Trump's party and Trump's party to carry forward. Well, there were some people that would seem to be clinging to the notion that, uh, especially after uh, what happened in the midterms and then the Mar-a-Lago and, and a number of other things, that way you can pretty much write Trump out. You know, the, he's gone. He's yesterday's news. Uh, and, and there will be somebody else, maybe a DeSantis or somebody else as the Republican nominee for the next uh, race. Uh, does does this performance this past weekend uh, put that to rest and just say maybe he is still going to be the guy? I think that it's a combination of the performance this past weekend and just the fact that he has been out on the campaign trail more over the last few weeks than he was, say, towards the end of last year when he jumped into this race. Yes, he took a lot of the uh, blame for what happened to the Republican Party in the midterms. They did take the House, but it was by a very small margin. They failed to make any gains uh, in the U.S. Senate, and that was because there were a lot of bad Trump-backed candidates that the base just simply wasn't rallying around. Fast forward a few months now, we've seen Donald Trump on the campaign trail. We've seen Donald Trump uh, in uh, in Ohio, in East Palestine, where the train collision, uh, the train derailment took place. This is somebody who's now trying to get back into the news, who's trying to take the headlines uh, and the space away from anyone else. And look, Fox News has now devoted more time to saying the words Donald Trump 
in recent weeks than they have to saying the words Ron DeSantis. Donald Trump is leading in the polls by more than 15% over Ron DeSantis. That is a slow trickle up from where we were at the end of the midterms last year. So could Trump be the one who runs away with this? I mean, it's still very early. There's still more than a year to go, but he's doing what he can to make sure that he's treating it like 2016, get the news cycle, control the news cycle, control the narrative. But in 2016, I mean, a lot of people figured, you know, when you came down the escalator of Trump Tower there to announce he was running again, people said, oh, hey, here, okay, here, that's funny. You know, here's the comedian again. Uh, but as he seemed to get strength and as, as you know, things started to pick up, uh, he seemed to get rejuvenated. And, and of course, one of his tactics, as, as you reported, and I think we talked about it at the time, was he just loves to tear his opponents apart. Uh, and and he took a few shots at DeSantis uh, during his speech at CPAC, uh, and a couple of the other folks here vowing what he calls retribution from his enemies. And he's talking about his enemies within the Republican Party, isn't he? Well, I'm sure he is. Uh, and I think that this is where Donald Trump learns how to play the messaging properly in that anything that I said before or anything that happened before right at this second doesn't really count. We can only look forward because... At one point, I mean, it's very well recorded that Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis were allies with each other. Uh, they had, you know, a bit of a back and forth when it came to certain policies, especially during the pandemic. But ultimately, Ron DeSantis had the backing of Donald Trump. Donald Trump now needs to realize that Ron DeSantis is a potential threat. And you are going to see, which we've seen over the last couple of days, the Trump team is set to put out uh, a multi-point platform going after Ron DeSantis. Um, this is how this is how he is going to carve that path forward and at the same time realize that there is, you know, a finite base in the GOP and he is going to try and collect as much as he can to make it much harder for that base to peel away towards someone else. It's still a long time out. Ron DeSantis isn't even in this race yet. That's also going to probably play into how Trump looks at this is that he's focused on the country. He's going to say Ron DeSantis can't even make up his mind on what he wants to do. That could help to turn some of the base. Let's talk about the other side of the, the fence here, too, the Democratic situation. Uh, disappointed in many ways, as you mentioned, with the midterm results, uh, especially at the, the state and local level. And just to remind our listeners, of course, party politics still plays a very important role and a very big role uh, in in even in local politics and municipal politics uh, south of the border. And uh, some big news there. Uh, they, I mean, for instance, uh, uh, Laurie Lightfoot, uh, well, she guess now the former mayor of Chicago, uh, losing, didn't even uh, make it into the runoff section of this. And some people are looking at this and saying, maybe this is something the Democrats need to pay attention to. Uh, what's, what's your read on this, Reggie? Are these one-offs or is there there's a movement happening here? I think we need to wait and see how this is going to play out. Look, Chicago is uh, a city of its own. It is dealing with massive um, increases in crime. And while some of the numbers are down, at least when it comes to homicides via gun, uh, other issues in the city are starting to rapidly increase, uh, like regular crime and carjackings. Um, and that's an issue that's actually starting to steamroll across the country. So this loss for Lori Lightfoot, this inability to kind of reach out to the people in the city and say, look, here's how how we're going to fix this ultimately cost her her job. Is that going to play out elsewhere? I mean, look, here in D.C., gun violence is uh, is soaring. Uh, carjackings are soaring. Uh, assaults and robberies on the street. Those numbers are rapidly increasing. That could put um, a potential political target on the back of D.C.'s mayor, Muriel Bowser. So, 
you know, Eric Adams is the one who is coming out saying the mayor of New York is coming out saying, look, this issue surrounding Lori Lightfoot's loss needs to be a warning sign to other Democrats that this is not just a Republican ploy to say that crime is something that needs to be dealt with. This is a reality. And if the broad base is saying, look, we're we're fearful of going outside, we're fearful of crossing this street towards the other streets. It becomes problematic for that Democratic leader uh, or that independent leader um, to say that they've been able to fix it. So whether it's a warning sign, whether it's an alarm sounding, you know, we'll need to see a few elections down if other local leaders find themselves in the same spot. And if that is the case, do Democrats then have to change their tone to not quite sound like Republicans, but openly accept that maybe some cities are getting a little more dangerous? Uh, which is why, as you've been reporting over the last couple of years, I guess now, even Democrats in some of those uh, purple areas, I guess, as they call it down there, uh, are, are not going to speak out about gun control to the extent that they probably would want to or should, uh, simply because they're concerned about the backlash. And it's, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. The other side of this, though, that that, that you've been talking about, Reggie, is, that, is you know, the Democrats are trying to build up a team. I mean, you know, is Biden going to run or not run? Well, we don't know about that yet, and that's going to sort itself out. Uh, but they figure, I guess, uh, based especially on what happened in the midterms, uh, they're trying to build some teams at the state lo- level, uh, especially when it comes to state legislatures. And uh, they've got some high-profile candidates, people that are, I guess you class these uh, as up-and-comers, really, that, that, that may well be the future of this party. Sure. And not even up and comers. I mean, you have legitimate long term politicians who are trying to find a new path forward. And it's because oftentimes, I mean, this is the case in Canada and the US and elsewhere around the world, some politicians get into power and they refuse to budge. And what does that do? It creates a log jam to create a new, um, you know, path forward for how the new generation of a party is going to look. Um, and well, Michigan is, is a state that a lot of people are looking at in that they were able to flip the state completely blue during the midterms. There are some members of the House that are starting to look forward to say, maybe I have a bigger shot that goes beyond the House of Representatives. California is also a big one to watch. Senator Dianne Feinstein, who has been in power for decades, um, has announced that she will not seek another term. Uh, and what is that doing? It is now opening the floodgates for younger Democrats, uh, younger, I mean, being just a word to use, uh, yeah. to jump in. Someone like Adam Schiff, someone like Representative Barbara Lee, they are now trying to say, look, there is an opportunity for us to get into the Senate to try and change things and, and make this Democratic Party new. This is an opportunity for Democrats to try and build on what took place in the midterms, possibly try to stave off uh elimination in 2024 because the map is not in Democrats' favor by the time we get to the next election. Uh, and it's, it's going to be fascinating to see just how they can do that and, and how that's going to reflect uh, on, on the federal scene, on the political scene in the Congress, and uh, and certainly uh, with the presidential race. It's in a remaining moments here, let me swing back to that if we could. So we just said, uh, the indication seems to be that Joe Biden may actually be looking for a second term here. But, you know, his, his wife talked about that, as you reported on Global News uh, just a little while ago, that she's inclined, and I think he's inclined, uh, and it's always a, a, a problem, Reggie, if, for instance, if, if it's a Democrat in the White House, that there is now, uh, nobody really wants to say, well, I'm going to challenge Biden for the, the for the nomination. I think, I think the only time in recent history I can remember that was when Ted Kennedy did it way back when Lyndon Johnson uh, was still thinking of running. And, and it, it caused shockwaves in the party. I mean, that's your guy. You don't want anybody to challenge you know, your candidate, especially a, an incumbent candidate. Uh, but there's a, a lot of people 
you know, waiting for Biden to make an announcement on that. And not some of them aren't waiting at all. I mean, Marianne Williamson uh, apparently has made it official right now as as a candidate, uh, wants to run for president. Uh, who is she? And, 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 you know, do we take this candidacy seriously? Well, I mean, look, she did this before. She ran, uh, this is her second time trying to run for uh, the Democratic ticket. She bowed out before the Iowa caucuses in the last round. Uh, She is a one-time spiritual advisor to Oprah. Uh, She was kind of a fringe, long-shot candidate the first time. She is still a fringe and long-shot candidate this time. Uh, But she was trying to play to some of the Democratic base over the weekend, holding her event in Washington, D.C. at Union Station, you know, a place that holds a, a, a piece of Joe Biden. Biden's heart when he would take the Amtrak in um, every single day for work when he lived in Delaware when he was a senator. Um, she was speaking in a, in a similar way that we heard from Nikki Haley on the Republican side, saying that we need to take this uh, this party to a new generation. We need to stop looking at where we are now and progress beyond that um, by saying that, you know, people are upset about the country, people are worried about the country, and that one president can't fix that. She didn't mention Joe Biden by name, but ultimately said, we need to do something different here. And the crowd in the room with her was young. It was a lot of university students in their early 20s who may not be fully on board with Marianne Williamson, but are not on board with Joe Biden. And if nobody else is running, she may be a potential to kind of take some votes. But at the same time, if she makes it all the way through, it could lead to vote splitting. She doesn't really have a real shot at doing this, but she is the first. Does that open the door now to somebody else saying, well, look, maybe I can be that person who can get the party in a new direction possibly in a younger direction. Uh, which has been something they've been talking about since the midterms, isn't it? I mean, they, they don't want Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi to be uh, the face of the Democratic Party going forward. And they've already made some moves in that direction, haven't they? They absolutely have. Uh, the party, you know, even with with where leadership is right now, uh, it is far younger. It is far more diverse. The, the Democrats are trying to say, look, we can shift. We don't have to constantly be this party of 30 decades ago that's now leading. You know, Marianne Williamson, she's 70 years old. It's not like she is young as well. But ultimately, this is a party that is trying to shift and change. Because again, if the map's not in their uh, favor in 2024, this is going to be an uphill climb. So if they can make even some small gains and not completely find themselves in elimination territory, this could be how they're able to roll forward through 2026 and 2028. There's always an election right around the corner. And just because you lose one, you're not far off from trying to regain it in the next. Well, it's going to be a pivotal week. As always, we'll be watching for your reporting on Global National, Reggie. Thanks for this today. Have a great week. Thank you. Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.